If you heard our last episode on the myths surrounding Black on Asian crime, you heard that narratives pitting one historically marginalized community against another is a tactic sometimes used to distract us from the real enemy that we should all be focused on. And it's white supremacy. It helps when we deconstruct the facts and look at real studies to dispel those myths. And we think it helps even more when we get an opportunity to listen to the stories of people who live the Black and Asian experience as a multiracial American, when we hear their heart-centered experiences from start to end. And that's why we are so excited to share our conversation with Ryan Alexander Holmes, who's not only an amazing actor and king of hilarious reels on Instagram, but also someone who has thought deeply about race, identity, trauma, healing, and so much more. We believe that there's something in this conversation for everyone, regardless of how you identify, as it focuses on humanity first, above all else. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial, Japanese, and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? I'm Ryan Alexander Holmes. I'm an actor, an influencer of sorts, a content creator on Instagram. I'm Black and Chinese, mixed, and I speak about you know, the unifying power of embracing multiculturalism every day. That's me. I like <laughs> it. Can we just go around and talk about these multicultural, multi-ethnic, like the, this lens for a second here. And Misasha, I know you're waiting for me to say like multicultural hats or something. Oh, I was waiting because we have this like behind the scenes script and Sarah wrote out some of this stuff and she's like, let's go around the room and put on our multicultural hats for a moment. And I'm like, tell me more about this hat. Like, I'm just fascinated. <laughs> it's got a little spinny thing on the top, you know. The reason I'm asking this is because when we when I looked for more information about you, I noticed that you had Chinese characters on your website. So first, my question is, how do you pronounce your Chinese name? It's Huren and All right. Yeah. I like it that it's on there. My name, like which nobody here knows in Japanese is Hasegawa Yoko. And I have a whole story about like when I lived in Japan and worked for a mm -hmm. like foreign company, I entered on my Japanese passport and they had me listed, you know, like your often corporate names or like your first name, dot, last name at whatever company. I was listed as like Yoko dot Hasegawa at this company's name. And people were like, who's this? Like, because I'm Sarah, like they had no idea. Nobody in my life would ever know me as this. And so these names, these identities that we have, that you have, that I have are different than I think, Misasha, your situation. Discuss name. <laughs> and by the way, yeah. So in the Google Doc notes for this, Sarah wrote, Misasha, discuss name, period. And I was like, wow. But yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, my last name is Suzuki. And so I walked into a room with a made up first name, which my parents, you know, I've told this story a bunch of times, but my parents were like, you know what, this will work out great because all Japanese will think it's Japanese, all Americans will think it's American. And it was totally not that because all Japanese think it's American. All Americans think I'm like, maybe Russian, maybe Eastern European. No one can say this, even though it's phonetic. But it was very much like they're looking around for the Suzuki. And I'm like, here I am. And, and no one knew what to do with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Sarah, like on your passport, it says your Japanese name. On my Japanese passport, it had my Japanese name. And on my American passport, when before I got married and changed my name and all this sort of stuff, it had I, Yoko was my middle name. So on your birth certificate, it's Sarah? Sarah Yoko. So I had like, I felt like I had a secret superhero name, you know, like the other identity that people in my day-to-day -day life in America did not know about. 
And so, like, can we talk about the significance of these names that we have for just a moment? Like, what is it for you? I mean, my parents named me and my brother in Chinese first and then found phonetically a name that matched that name in English. My mom is also applying for citizenship for me and my brother in Taiwan. So I wonder if I can put my Chinese name on my passport or if that's just going to be way too confusing or I should just put my American name on there. You know what I mean? So thinking about your story makes me think about, okay, do I have like, you know, my Superman name on my, you know what I mean? Like which name is going to be which? But I do think that names are super powerful, right? Like if you to other people don't look like the race that you say that you are and that you are, then a name can sort of be that validation for other people. You know what I'm saying? I've always, not always, I used to wish that I had a Chinese sounding name so that people wouldn't have to constantly question me, but really they will still question you. So, And that's also putting the control outside of yourself, you know, and relying on external validation. So what does the name mean to you is really the question. Like, what does it mean to you internally? Not what do you think it'll mean to other people? I love that. Well, both because of how I've come to terms with my own name, right, which is very similar to how I feel about it, but also what I've tried to do for my boys who have very unique Japanese names, who when people see them are like, I don't know what's going on here, but it's got to be what it means to them, right? And I've seen them internalize it. So I love the way you phrase that because I think the power and the control are recentered where it should be, right, inside. You know, I want to talk about that for a second because, you know, having a name where people don't expect you to look the way you do or showing up in a community where people expect you to be one thing and you are not that thing or you are that thing and so much more, you know, in your story, you're so clear that you grew up with, you know, nobody who looked like you, save for the people in your, you know, your brother, right? And even nowadays, my boys are some of the very few Black, Asian, white boys around. In fact, they're the two that I know, right? So I have a few questions on this because I grew up in Pasadena and I remember from our conversation that you grew up at least partly in San Marino, which I think of as Pasadena's like wealthier Asian cousin, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up there, you know, and kind of, this is like a multi-part question, so we can, we can come back to it. But like with that growing up where no one looks like you, right? What is the power and the downside of being in this position, you know? And then from that, how do you find your community or how do you find belonging? I am constantly grappling and it's always changing when I look back at the past, right? Because, you know, it's the past. So you create, you can, if you're not careful, you can create narratives that aren't necessarily completely factual. Like you make yourself believe them. I had a great childhood. I really did. But I grew up in a community that, you know, there was no African-Americans whatsoever besides my family. And there were very few mixed people there as well. So I was experiencing something that no one else was experiencing in my little bubble of San Marino, right? And then you couple that with the fact that, yes, it's a very high income area. And it also has a history of very conservative inhabitants. You know, everyone voted for Reagan, almost like 95% of people voted for Reagan in San Marino during the 80s. So that tells you like the environment that I'm in, right? And in the 80s also was when sort of the Chinese immigrants started to come into the community. And what I learned is that like there was a history of 
anti-Asian rhetoric and violence in San Marino that was swept under the rug by the time that we got there in the 90s, late 90s, right? And I only realized this probably like two months ago, I pulled up this article in, I think, the Los Angeles Times that talked about this racial, anti-Asian racial incident. And it wasn't perpetrated by Black people because they ain't no Black people in San Marino. So this is the community that I'm growing up in. I think what really was my saving grace was that I had my parents, you know, and my dad grew up in poverty in the deep South and rose up and through education, right? So education is paramount to my parents. And one of the reasons we moved to San Marino was so that we could get the resources, the educational resources of San Marino, you know, because it was a public school. That means it's free if you live in the area, right? So, but at the same time, it was not a safe environment for me and my brother. It was not safe. It really wasn't. And I can say that because the police knew our names. My dare officer was kind of a bully towards me. I would be singled out by my teachers who didn't look like me and they weren't people of color. They tried to put me and my brother in special ed, right? And I always flex on people. I'm like, yeah, I grew up in San Marino. It's a great public school system. But that system tried to put me and my brother in special ed. And I went to Berkeley and my brother went to Yale. So there's something going on there, right? There's something going on there if they thought that we belonged in special ed, but we went to the greatest institutions in the world. So when I really look back, I think about how in many instances, I found myself as a kid, like, why are people treating me this way? Like racism in a child's mind is so ridiculous that they can't even fathom it. And that was me as a child. I didn't ever think that it was because of my skin color or because I was black. That never entered my mind because it was so ridiculous, right? So I just thought that something else was wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. And so it did sort of manifest itself in sort of always trying to people please. And, you know, a positive outcome was that I was very nice to everybody and I was a very high achiever and got straight A's all the time. You know what I mean? But when I look back at that, I'm like, oh, that was racism. Okay, so how can I heal from that, those experiences and then also stick up for myself, but not lose sort of like the high achievement? And it's kind of weird, but the high achievement and sort of the charisma that I had to use in order to survive in that environment, right? Don't take that away. Don't turn into hating white people because that's not, it's the ideology that we're up against, right? So yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> I love that. That idea, like you just exemplified what all of us need to think about when we think about the pressures that kids are under and how you kids can so innocently internalize the negative forces that are out there that the structures of racism are putting on kids. Speaking of generalizations, I do have a question, though, because you mentioned at the beginning that you do social media influencing and the Chinese food reels and the chopstick videos on your website and socials are absolutely freaking hilarious. And so I realize, you know, so much of humor comes from naming the things that may seem stereotypical, but are also kind of true. And I have like a two part question, but I want to ask this first one, which is kind of a I think I'm actually a lot funnier behind the scenes and more ridiculous. But I do the Japanese thing when I'm out there, like, don't stick your head out, be a neutral life coach, training and culture, right? So I'm playing with this idea of being more authentic, being out there, being funnier in public. But I feel like there's got to be these considerations when you're being cheeky like that in social media, right? Like, what are the upsides and downsides, the things you're thinking about when you call things out as they are and when you are bold? 
I think, no, this is a great question because I think about this every day. And, you know, my relationship with social media changes every day in my own mind because a lot of the times I'm receiving a lot of vitriol, like very racist things are being said to me. And sometimes I, when they attack my family, then I'm, I start seeing red and I'm like, this is not good. This is making me lose hope and faith and just humanity in general. I need to take a break. But delineating between those two things, right? Like the stereotype. The stereotype is funny if you're tongue in cheek and in on it with the joke. And the intention is to not sort of propagate the stereotype to show how ridiculous it is. That's the point, right? I think it's not, you know, I have to keep my intentions pure. And there's so many balancing acts, right? Like, I don't want to chase the fame. I don't want to chase the likes and the engagement, but I still, you know, want to get my message out there at the same time. So especially with me, like getting my message out there, humor was such a thing that helped me because if people can laugh about it and, you know, all of a sudden becomes universal, right? But I think that there was always a fear that I had to embrace certain parts of myself because once again, back to where I grew up, like it wasn't safe to do those things. And when I did it, so oftentimes it was met with, well, you're, you look this way, so you need to act that way. And it's like, well, actually, I'm shut up. You look this way, you need to act that way. And so a lot of my content also revolves around that. It's also a reclamation of what I was not allowed or felt like I was not allowed to express growing up outside of my household, right? Like you said, there is this double consciousness of, you know, when you're in private, when you're with your, you know, insular community, and when you're with your family and your friends who, you know, you're allowed to be yourself. And then when you're sort of in a public space, like, how do you find that balance? And I think it does take that work of understanding who you are and your intentions and not being afraid of, you know, the imaginary, it's imaginary, the imaginary reaction that you think will happen if you start acting in accordance to who you know that you are. And I think that's the most radical thing is so many people are afraid to be who they are because they're afraid of the reaction that has not happened yet. I like that. That's actually really, really powerful. Little life coaching lesson. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, the other thing that I do think it's worth pointing out is that, you know, the things we're talking about are commenting on cultures that we're familiar with, these dynamics that we're familiar with. I think it's very, very different for me, Sasha and I, for example, to talk about Japanese culture and talk about its pros and cons because it's our culture. It's like our stuff that we're experiencing versus say a white person who is not experienced in that culture, speaking about someone's culture from the outside. What are your thoughts about commenting on things you're experts in versus observations you're making from outside a culture? Yeah, I try not to make any comments outside of culture. Like that's not my place, you know? And then I find it funny when people aren't a part of the culture and they're not experts of the culture and they have such a strong opinion, right? I think if you're an expert in the culture, you can have an opinion. You know, you better back it up with, you know, empirical evidence, you know, but if you're not, then it's kind of laughable to me that they would, people would even have an opinion and, and assume that people should respect it, you know? Totally agree on so many levels, you know, and speaking about culture and how we interact with our own cultures, right? We spoke with Alex Chester Iwata, who I know is a friend of yours, who is a third generation Japanese American, as we sort of mold over what it means to inherit a culture when you're several generations removed from that country of origin, right? And her experience is different than Sarah's and mine because we have Japanese immigrant parents, right? Who definitely brought 
all the culture with them. And it was so interesting in that conversation to consider how culture shows up, especially when you have multiple ones. So I wanted to ask you, how do you experience your Chinese and African-American cultures in your life? And this is also kind of a personal question for me, because as I think about my kids with all of their cultures, how that shows up for them. Once again, I always go back to like the internal locus of control and the external locus of control. A lot of times I'll get caught up in what I think the Black community might think about what I say about being Black. But then I'm just like, why don't you just say it? You're Black. Again, an imaginary sort of imaginary experience that hasn't happened yet that I'm afraid of. And that goes towards the Asian American side as well. I think when I started finally speaking my truth and then also embracing being mixed, but also embracing being Asian and speaking from an Asian perspective, I was really surprised by the outcome because I almost in my mind, you know, I was doing it defiantly. But then what I received was all this love and appreciation and community. So it was very confusing for me. I thought that I'd be fending off racists and sort of purists. But then the reaction was the complete opposite of what I was expecting. And that's not to say that there still wasn't negativity, but like the, the amount of negativity that I thought I'd be combating was not even close, you know, to what I received. And it was sort of overwhelmed with the love and support. And that sort of showed me that, oh, this embracing that you always did when you were in private, when you were at your, you know, I was at my grandma's house, either grandma, and we were doing very cultural things on either side, that I didn't need to hide that and that I could fully embrace both. Because there's a feeling I think that a lot of mixed people have is that we're an outsider to both. But like, do you actually feel like an outsider or are you allowing other people to make you feel like an outsider? Because that's dangerous because you'll go into environments where no one actually sees you as an outsider, but you carry this badge of being an outsider. And so people treat you like, I guess he doesn't want to be here, I guess. Or I guess he thinks he's better than us. And it's like, no, no, no. I just thought that you thought that I would be an outsider. So I came in with that energy. And now I'm receiving the-, the voice. Wait, wait, the voice transition that you just had was amazing. <laughs> I didn't go to drama school for nothing. But you know what I'm talking about? There is, I'm really big on this sort of internal validation, right? Because there are these imaginary ghouls that we're fighting that we project onto other people and entire communities, even our own communities as mixed people. And we're fighting these battles and they're like, what's wrong with him? Like, why is there so much animosity coming from him towards us? Like, we were just going to ex- listen to him, but you know what I mean? And I think that also comes from the past and the trauma that you experience in the past and you bring it towards the future. Like, I drive through the city I grew up in all the time. You know, my parents moved to the next city over and I'm, I'm like, you know, close by too. So I'm always like in that area. It doesn't feel like home because of, you know, the experiences that I had there. But I off, I was driving by the other day and I was like, am I carrying like past trauma and putting it on the present day San Marino? Because it might be completely different. And I have no idea because I'm not attached to that city. I, I don't know any teachers from the old schools that I went to. I don't even know anyone who really still lives there. So I think about that too, you know, that I could be causing my own sort of pain or not causing my own pain, but holding on to pain 
and attaching it to a city where that pain no longer uh, exists anymore. I think that's such an important point, right? The past trauma influencing present day situations. And that is definitely something that has shown up in my own life and is something that I'm also working really hard to not put on my kids, right? Because they will experience it very differently than I do. And they already do. So thank you for that. It's a really beautiful way to frame that, I think. And hopefully that provides people who are listening, who are either mixed or, you know, have been in similar situations to think about how the past and the present, you know, intertwined or don't, right? I want to switch gears for a second, because this is something that not only Sarah and I have been asked about a lot, but something that we've talked about a lot on our podcast and something that I personally discuss to like infinite degrees in my own household and has been discussed sort of towards us as well, which is the misperceptions of Black on Asian crime, right? And the concept of pitting one, you know, underrepresented group against the other to distract from the real, you know, problem that we all face, which is white supremacy, right? And and the systemic structures and, you know, pillars that are in place that hurt us all, right? And I am projecting, but I imagine that my sons are going to be asked this a lot in the future. And I'm also thinking that you, as someone who is Black and Chinese, you've probably been asked about this a lot, like maybe as the personal spokesperson for why this, you know, is either happening or not. And I want to keep this really real here, because I think people think about this as like a holistic concept and have viewpoints that are often not necessarily informed by facts or reality. So what do you say when you're asked this? How do you address this topic? That's where I start. (laughs) And then I ask also, you know, where are you getting this information? You know, there is this woman on Twitter, I don't even really want to say her name, but she's an Asian American. And the things that she says are very dangerous. And so I really read all her tweets and it it was painful, but I'm like, okay, you're saying you're insinuating that black people are predisposed genetically to criminality. Okay. Well, that's insanely racist. Where is this coming from? Like what backs you up to say all these things? And do you really believe in these things? So I did a background search on her and found that she's funded by the Manhattan Institute, which is a right-wing think tank that's funded by billionaires, right-wing billionaires, right? And so then I'm automatically like, oh, okay, well, this makes sense. And then I do more research and then find out the think tank was founded by Ronald Reagan, CIA chief. I do more research and then see that it's funding anti-critical race theory and trying to eradicate MLK from the Virginia curriculum. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, then this makes sense. You follow the purse strings, right? And you see these people are being manipulated by money. Like They don't even necessarily believe in the things they're saying. This is their job. And they're getting very well paid to do it, right? It almost, it's still, morality and is still in there, but you start to understand where it comes from. Because oftentimes when you start sort of, arguing and engaging with these people, they start to use prejudice tropes as empirical evidence. And then you're like, oh, wait, like, where do I go from here? You're just racist, right? So to answer your question, it's like, what is the benefit of actually talking to people that actually already agree with that, right? You have to find out where they are on the line. Are they being paid by a right-wing billionaire think tank? Or have they been manipulated by that verbiage that comes from, you know, minorities, props that are being 
used to propagate this false information into the stratosphere, right? So that's sort of where you have to come from, because if you don't, you can sort of risk becoming your own worst enemy and fighting tooth and nail against whatever that person represents, right? It could be, I don't know, middle-aged women. It could be an Asian American community. It could be like, you could easily morph into what you hate, right? So when answering that question, again, you man, you gotta be vigilant. You gotta make sure that you keep your balance and don't let yourself be thrown off and start being very, very overridden by these negative emotions when really that's the goal of some of these people, right? And then they'll be like, see, you're the angry black man. See, see, I feel threatened. You are predisposed to criminality, right? It's kind of when you start realizing all the, the tricks that they got up their sleeve and then it just becomes sort of funny, but I don't expect people to be at that place, right? It takes years and years and years of doing self-work, right? And also healing from your past. And then also calling yourself out when you have these thoughts against an entire group of people. Like I've been there before, you know, I felt that the Asian American community in large was racist because I'd had so many racist experiences growing up, being followed around in stores, um, being cussed out in Chinese and people talking shit about me to my Chinese mom, not knowing that that was my mom, right? You start to see, I mean, back then, my experiences painted a picture of the Asian community at large outside of my family as something that was dangerous and that didn't accept me and never would accept me. And sort of I had to do internal work to figure out who I was and what being Asian meant to me and then express that to the world. And that takes like an amount of courage, you know what I mean? Because I really was ready to like go to war. Like it felt like war and what I received was love and support, right? It's just not real. To answer your question, it's not real. It's not based in fact, right? Instead of maybe these people arguing with these people who are saying racist things, it prioritize finding the facts, right? So that you know the facts. So you can be like, that's just not true. And you're racist, not just you're racist, you know? So you can back up your own understanding that like, I'm not insane. You know what I mean? These people are saying racist things to me to make me feel like, I actually am predisposed to criminality or I am the projection that they see me. Let me go get these facts. Let me find my community. Let me be filled with love and light and education about myself and about these issues so that when they do say these things, it's a joke. It has no weight on them. It's just funny. It's humorous. I have actually felt like this whole conversation has been this warm community centering multicultural folk, people who understand our lived experiences of society not telling us we fit into the boxes, but creating our own spaces anyway. And I appreciate so much of this conversation and the wisdom that you have shared, the patience, the understanding, the idea of surrounding ourselves with love and giving ourselves that grace in the face of societies that weren't built to accept the likes of us. And so, you know, Coming from that conversation where I think a lot of folks were listening to this who are mixed race, well, I hope will come away with the same feeling of like, wow, welcome. This is amazing. Now to step out and sort of talk to the monoracial folks who are listening, the white people, the other people, what do you want people to know about the mixed race, the multicultural, the Asian and or black perspectives? Just like you, like, how are we any different? (laughs) 
You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, I picture like the Us magazine, like the famous people. They're just <laughs> like us. They go shopping. It's like multiracial people. Why do they look at us like, you know, they decide who we are? That's just so weird to me. You know what I mean? Like we're just like you. We're just humans and we happen to be these, our parents just were two wild racials and they made you know, a mixed person. I I understand that I can say this because I've done so much like work and I've had the parents, I've been blessed to have the parents that I have that instilled me with this, you know. But yeah, to them, I would say sort of like another version of what I said about that, the previous question is just like, who are you? And find your community. Because if you don't find your community, then yeah, like you're subject to thinking that you're so different that you don't belong. And then you'll meet all these mixed people and you're like, oh, we're mixed. And then after a while, you'd be like, we're kind of just like everyone else, aren't we? You're like, now that we're in numbers and, you know, we love each other, it's like kind of just people, right? You know? And I think that's what it always goes back to is like, there are factions that want to arbitrarily divide, you know, certain sects of humanity into categories. But then when you allow that, you allow yourself to be subdivided and subdivided into this category and that category, you start to, if you're not careful, you start to to wholly identify as that and then start to see everyone else differently. And then, you know, which, which is happening to me and has happened to me and I'm still constantly working at it, is like you or I in general, you start to predetermine what they think other people are saying about them or thinking about them in an interaction or just seeing another person that's Asian. Oh, that person thinks this about me, you know, or seeing a black person. Oh, that person thinks this way about me because I'm light skinned. You know what I mean? Or I talk about being Asian so much. They probably think that I hate being black, you know? So if you're not careful, those experiences start to shape your own mind and you're not stepping into conversations with a clean slate. You're stepping into conversations with the same stereotypes that were being forced upon you. And now you're forcing them upon other people. So it's a constant practice, a constant practice, right? I think like a lot of mixed people, and I think this is just common amongst, you know, minorities just in general, they start to identify with this idea of being oppressed, right? And that's dangerous. Like it's not that we're not oppressed, but identifying with being oppressed and disenfranchised can be disenfranchisement and disempowerment in and of itself, right? So how do we embrace ourselves? And this is getting back to the humanity conversation. How do we empower ourselves, but not think that we're better than anyone else and not think that we're lesser than anyone else to just understand that we're all human and that's what grounds us and that's what makes us able to relate to anything on a very visceral level regardless of whatever ethnicity or nationality we are. I think that that is absolutely something we cannot say enough these days, right? That if we see that humanity in others, that transcends what divides us, right? And how we intentionally divide ourselves at times. And I I think that's such an important point when people out there are continually challenging that point exactly. So I love that you said that in that way. Not easy at all, but I think that's what we should all aspire towards for sure. And just to add, I feel like what I, I want to make sure people are hearing is that you can't just jump to the end point and say, 
we don't see difference. We're all humans together. I think what you're saying is you have to acknowledge and study the impact and the oppression and the history and understand where people have, what people's experiences have been, what the systemic experiences have also been in order to then show up on the other side. Absolutely. Can't skip that step. That's the most important step. (laughs) I love it because I think the internal work and facts are two things that we really love on this podcast. So I, I love that you called both of those out. We could obviously talk to you for hours, but you know, we want to make sure that we asked and gave you the opportunity to share, you know, whatever you think our listeners should know. So is there anything that we haven't asked you that you want people to know that you want people to take away from this? I know no biggie, right? No pressure. I've been thinking a lot about radical empathy, a lot about that and what that really means. Um, I recently read this book by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast. She talks about an experience of, you know, her being in her house and there was a flood in her basement. So she called a plumber and who showed up was, you know, a plump white man, middle-aged white man with a red hat that said, make America great again. And she had to check herself and be like, okay, don't prejudge, you know, let's see what happens. And sort of what happened was he did act like she thought he would act. And she's like, I had to remain like nice and centered and kind, right? And even though he was being very curt with her and not really listening to her, she went on a whim and was like, you know, recently my mother passed away, right? She shared some very vulnerable information with him. And then he, he in turn was like, wow, like my mother actually passed away too recently, you know? And then they started to bond, you know, on a very human level, right? And I use that story because I have something similar in my life, like, one of my landlords was a Trump supporter, you know, and I didn't know that before because, you know, he's just a nice man, you know, and then we started talking about politics and they started talking about, you know, being a Republican and being a Trump supporter. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I just sort of confused. And but I knew this man and he was very kind to me. And so I just started asking him questions like, you know, what, why? And his thing was, you know, he just didn't believe that gay people shouldn't be married. He just didn't want them to call it marriage. He wanted them to have all the rights. He just didn't want them to be called marriage. And I was like, wow, that's very different than like what we hear about these people who are anti, like we feel like, you know, someone hearing him say that he's a MAGA supporter, people would just lump it in in the entire group of, you know, the people who stormed the Capitol and the people who said, you know, God hates gays. But what we're dealing with is way more nuanced. And in those nuances is the humanity. But I think we've become so polarized by the way that we consume media and the way that social media operates that we're not even actually meeting these people face to face. I can't tell you another time I met another Trump supporter, right? Because as soon as you hear those words, as soon as you see that hat, that's game over. It's not safe. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to sort of break bread with you at all. You might manipulate me and I might become one of you or something, something like that, you know? So what radical empathy does is sort of like eradicates all that and starts with a clean slate and you have to come bare, you know, and let that person prove to you that they're guilty or that they actually are the animal that you think they are before they, you know, you can't just go into it assuming that, right? It clears yourself of, of assumptions and makes you enter situations with an open heart, you know, 
But I'm like, you also have to have the tools for when you start to realize that it's not safe, that you eject immediately, right? So it's not, it's really not, oh, I'm an open heart and I'm just going to treat everyone with respect because you could get killed that way too. You know what I mean? So, and this is why I think about it so much. Sarah is dying. <laughs> like, I love I think- this. <laughs> oh God, like, can we just do like a gif of that, please? <laughs> open hard i love you <laughs> because you know some people will be like get the hell out of my face you n-word pow pow like so how do you employ radical empathy but at the same time make sure that you're safe that's the biggest battle for me but it's the battle that i never want to stop waging how do i get as close to radical empathy as possible and achieve my goals through it but also s- survive to tell the tale you use the word nuance. And I, I think that that's perfect for what you're talking about, because there are so many nuances, right, in that. And it is such radical empathy. You know, we had Terry Givens write the foreword for our, our book, and she wrote a book on radical empathy. And it's something that, you know, Sarah and I have been talking about a lot and it is another crux of the podcast. And I think that it is such a revolutionary idea on some levels and on some levels, not at all. But the nuances of it are you know, the tricky part in a lot of ways. And and I, I really appreciate you sharing like the, you know, that internal thought process, right, that goes on that has to go on that has to continue to go on and the work, right, the work that this really is day in and day out about everything, right? How do we navigate society? How do we understand ourselves? How does that interplay happen? All of that. So, you know, I really appreciate all of that. It's given me a lot of hope, which I don't, Sarah knows I don't say a lot. So like, <laughs> we needed a dose of this. This is good. <laughs> yeah. Hope is not very ubiquitous these days. No. Okay. So if people are wanting more hope from hearing you talk and all of your social media and all of that, where can our listeners find you? Uh, it's Ryan Alex H. R-Y-A-N-A-L-E-X-H. Everywhere. I don't know. On Twitter even though it's not called that anymore. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube. Yeah. That's awesome. You all better go follow him. It's fantastic. Really, really appreciate your time today. You were very heart-centered and I loved having this conversation, really centering what I think a lot of us needed to hear. So appreciate you. Yeah. Well, hearts recognize other hearts and then they open up. So that's what happened. Thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 